When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the continuation of the Division Capsule series that I do during the offseason at Real GM Radio, and this one is on the Atlantic Division. And I'm extremely happy to have Jared Weiss of The Athletic and Jared Dubin on the show. And it's pure good fortune, but I'm very happy that we waited to do The Atlantic because of all the big stuff that happened with Drew Holiday and everything else. So we can get got into that, of course. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed if you place a $5 bet, which is great. And I'll talk, of course, a lot more about that later and hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Good to be here with a fellow Jared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be using last names a fair amount when set it, setting things up here. And normally, you guys have both done this pod before. I start out with who got better and who got worse, and we will go through that with all five teams. But I want to start with the non the the person who's around the Celtics a little bit less for Mr. Dubin. D- do you think the Celtics got better or worse, and how much better or worse do you think they got with their notable offseason moves? Yeah, I think that that is... It sort of depends on the way you look at it. I think their floor is certainly lower. They are thinner. They're a little bit older. They're more susceptible to injuries to specific players, Um, you know, especially in the front court. Like they're counting a whole lot on obviously Christoph Porzingis staying healthy and Al Horford staying healthy and productive into, you know, his age 37 season. And that's, you know, a a pretty risky bet. And then obviously Drew Holiday is going to be 33 throughout this season. That's, you know, he has been healthy over the last several years. But, you know, a guard going into his mid-30s, it's never a guarantee. So there is more risk involved. But I do think that the ceiling is probably higher because I think Holiday brings a little bit more organization to the court on offense than what Marcus Smart brought even if you might think that smart is like a more adventurous or creative passer and then just the different looks they can now give in the front court because of porzingis having a pretty rare skill set in terms of his ability to protect the rim stretch the floor and then even last year he was one of the most effective post-up players in the league which had previously been you know a relative weakness for him considering his size i think that they're just a more diverse team at full strength and a more like like a higher ceiling team than they were before and i understand the temptation for them to go in that direction because you know they've been in the mix obviously over the last several years they've gone to what is it four eastern conference finals in the last six seasons they went to the finals once obviously didn't break through but to keep being that good and that close and keep butting up against the same ceiling. I understand the temptation to try to open your window a little bit wider rather than ensuring that it's open for as long as possible. It's been open for so long at this point. They've made like what five conference finals now. It's they had to just at this point it's like let's just go for it and then we can rebuild if we have to from there. 
I think that there is always this perception that because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are relatively young, like they're just hitting their primes now, that there's still this six-year window. I know the owner, Wick Grossbeck, mentioned the six-year window that they're looking at at the Drew Holiday press conference. But in reality, this was like a... If those guys kept coming up short over and over, there's probably going to be some change there. So they might as well just completely go all in now and try to build the biggest juggernaut that they can with this pairing now with the expectation that if they were going to keep just coming up short over and over, the frustration was going to boil over because frustration is a word that's come up a lot. Like there's this frustration of longevity of near success but just coming up short in a town that they don't value making the finals like they just value winning the title and that's a that's something that ownership really plays into so it's like they don't really have a choice but to live up to that expectation and i i I really like the the move for them to do it because like i think for one pretty much any other franchise in the nba if they go all in and they acquire four all-stars or like three and a half all-stars everyone want to call it that would be seen as like an exciting clear and obvious move i feel like most most franchises it's just like that's what's expected and with boston i don't know if it's because of boston itself or because of the team that they've had there it's like not it doesn't seem to be this obvious answer but doing it with holiday i feel like is the ideal way to do it it's someone who you don't have to worry about him being okay with being third or fourth in the pecking order he brings you pretty much everything that you're looking for because they don't really need a super high-end creator they just need someone that can keep the offense going and can also just be a good pull-up score Um, And then Porzingis, it's not just that he unlocks all these different dimensions for them, but he gives them a really reliable pick and pop guy that they can use to play off of the Jays. And I think that's something that they haven't really had since uh, Horford hasn't really done as much pick and pop over the last couple of years, but like they really wanted someone that can create really easy two man actions with their top players that obviously they could run offense through him in the high post. Cause they want to do a lot more post stuff this year, especially in crunch time, especially in the playoffs. And so I think just Porzingis is one of those guys that they can pair him up with different, you know, different tandems and he can just open up so much for them and create more simple offense because this team was all about they had a good offensive theory but they couldn't really break from that theory when it wasn't working and get to some more simple stuff that's a really good point and i want to go back briefly to the idea of going in versus not and another piece of context that happened you know what's what's called in the last six months is clarity on what this collective bargaining agreement is the new one that came in and basically unless Boston is willing to suffer the long-term consequences of being in the second apron for, let's call it another four or five years, which maybe they are, but then they get into the frozen picks and all that type of stuff. It actually makes more sense to go harder for like three years and then maybe take your foot off the accelerator. And they don't need to decide what that would be now. That could be, you know, a, something with Drew Holiday or Tatum or Jalen Brown or, you know, Porzingis or obviously something like that. But you give yourself the better chance right now. Um, and you do that. And I think what's so fascinating to me about the Celtics now is that they've become so much more malleable offensively and probably less malleable defensively because Porzingis, you know, he's good at certain things, but he's not good at others. Though there is an argument to be made that basically I think of the Celtics now as having a six player core with the Jays, Drew Holiday, Kristaps Porzingis, Derek White, and Al Horford. So that's six players. You can do a couple of different configurations. They can be a little bit more flexible defensively if the guy who's off the floor is Porzingis. But the thing is, they they can do so much offensively that it's just a, it's a different ball game now. And I'm I'm excited to see what it's going to look like. Yeah, I think uh, a, a few things come up there. First of all, I, I thought. Uh... 
I, I guess I got to call him Weiss instead of Jared, but I was going to say Jared <laughs> uh, brought up uh, a good point about Porzingis and the pick and pop stuff. I think another element of that is that Porzingis just has a much quicker release on his jumper than Horford does. So those actions I think are more likely to just result in something fruitful because, you know, if you kick it out to Al Horford popping on the perimeter, he needs a while to get that shot up. Even if he's a pretty good shooter, Porzingis can let it fly a lot quicker. And, you know, he's just a little bit more mobile than, than Horford is. Then there's the aspect of them having their six player core and being more flexible. I do agree that they're probably more flexible offensively, just in terms of the different stuff they can do. The defense is where I think it does become an issue a little bit, though, because they used to be able to put, you know, like four wings on the floor at any time they wanted. Now it's like they've got Tatum and Brown, and I'm not sure what other wing on the roster they can trust unless you count Holiday as a wing. I think you I think can you, guard you count Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can guard, you know, most wings. There are some that are probably just going to be too big for him. Um, granted, he's one of the best small man guarding bigger man defenders of the last several years. And you should be able to, to get that out of him. But I do think that there's a little bit of a thinness on the wing that hasn't been there over the last few years. And that could sort of come back to present some issues at some point, depending on, you know, who they match up with in a playoff setting. Then there's the, you know, the going all in and the window kind of stuff. I did a story at the start of last season that dug into like, title contention windows and basically the average title window stays open for like less than three years and the celtics are already more than double that like they're in the middle of based on the criteria that i had used they're in the middle of like a seven-year window right now that's still open and i understand wanting to have you know a 10 15 year window or whatever it is because the more time you have to try to win one the theory would be you know the more likely you are to eventually get one but you also want to be able to actually get one you know like it's there are situations where you let's say you have a five percent chance to win one every year for 10 years there's still a pretty decent chance that you don't actually get one in that time so you want to raise the chance that you get one in a shorter term or immediate term Uh, and like jared said the the jays are still young enough that even if this three-year window it doesn't work out you could still have another three-year window after that that you try to go all in a different way you could sort of recoup some of the picks that you don't have right now that you know you'll be able to get more of those down the line and try to make another move to surround those guys with you know whoever the next version of holiday and porzingis and horford and Derek white is and a huge thing for them was that in that porzingis trade they brought in two extra first round picks so that made it which, which i still don't know how they pulled that off but that that enabled them to be able to go out and make a big package to holiday and still even though the quality of the picks are giving up in that trade is you know better than you know that you know they're giving up some of their real quality picks because it's the seven year out first rounder but they still have either one just more first round pick capital to move although they turn one of those picks into like multiple seconds i think they're probably not going to want to use a first they're probably going to want to use seconds in their next trade but it also allows them to over the next few years as they pay their top guys pretty much up to the second apron it allows them to draft quality players that they can then rebuild their rotation with because 
you know, one of the most interesting parts of that holiday trade of the trade talks was they could have either done a package where they had like five bench players and they basically got rid of every single young player on their roster, or they could do Rob Williams. And it's from everything I could tell, it just seemed like Joe Cronin was like, we're not doing this trade unless Rob Williams is in it. Um, but like, it was also a major question of, can they afford to get rid of every single young player that they have? And then just try to piece together like the five bench players that they use with minimum contracts over and over and over for the next few years. So they at least have some runway of being able to kind of replenish this rotation behind at least the Jays and then whatever happens long term with Porzingis and Holiday. And when you have so many highly paid players like that, you really need guys that are on cost-controlled contracts that actually have a chance to be better during the course of those contracts than guys that are on their way down. I think that's an issue that we've seen when some teams go all in and they wind up filling out the back of their roster with you know, 35, 36-year-old veterans as those guys last maybe a year, maybe two, and then all of a sudden you're looking at a roster that is super thin and guys that want to leave because there's no real way for your team to get better. I think it's better to stack the back of that roster with younger guys who could provide upside than it is to bring in like, you know, your rotating cast of, you know, I, I don't want to besmirch him because he went to the best school in the country, but James Jones's or, you know, Mike <laughs> Miller's or Udonis Haslam's or, you know, the guys that were on the back end of that Heat roster or the Cavs roster or whatever it was when uh, when LeBron was there. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, we'll get to see how it shakes out. And uh, for Boston, just briefly, I, I want to move on to other teams because I know our time is limited. Um, the holes that they have to fill now are really fascinating because like getting a low end ball handler, if it's not Pritchard, who I think they're going to is going to be their base, that's doable. You can get a like a whole Neto type guy, you know, they're around, you know, 10 to 20 minute a game creator. And then they need one more big in the rotation. Not a problem. Like you could, you're not going to get like a, you know, guy that you trust in the playoffs. That's okay. The wing point that that Jared brought up is the is this idea that I find really notable with the Celtics and a lot of other teams, which is it's not so much that their base lineups, like if, if there's six guys are healthy, I think they're totally fine there. I can consider Drew a wing for those purposes. There aren't that many teams that have those guys. And incidentally, fewer of them in the East at the moment, though that can always change. But you're, you know, if that it does make you more vulnerable to absences. So now if Porzing, even if it's Porzingis, and I said they can get bigs, but you can't get like a replacement for him or Horford or basically if any of those six other than maybe Derek White misses time, it's going to be hard to fill that spot. But that's that's the dice that you roll. You're not going to have a team in most circumstances that has three and a half, four all stars and then also has a 10 man rotation because that's ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, I think for them, the bet is just that those guys can be healthy in April and May. It doesn't matter necessarily if they're healthy in December or January. They have enough talent that they can get by in the regular season if one or two of those guys misses some time, as long as it's not happening all at the same time, or one of them doesn't go down for the season. Like, especially if Tatum and Brown stay relatively healthy, the floor for this team is is high enough that they don't really have anything to worry about in terms of, you know, making the playoffs or, or even dropping down to the play. And, like, I don't see that as a realistic possibility for them unless Tatum or Brown or both goes down for a significant length of time. It's more they they raise their playoff ceiling if everybody actually makes it through the season healthy. I think they just want a top three seed at the end of the day. Uh, and they're probably going to use those second round picks and they have a trade exception now for like six and a half million after Grant Williams went to Dallas. So they're probably going to use a package of those things to get somebody that's a serviceable big at some point in January or February. 
January that's like a little bit better than Onion Gabriel, Luke Cornett, O'Shea Brissett. I mean, O'Shea Brissett's a decent player. Like you can you can get away with him being oh, yeah, I like eighth him. man in the playoff rotation. And and then Sam Hauser like got he got to like fringe rotation status last year. And if he keeps improving, he might be serviceable for them as an actual seventh man. I, I think one of the things that they're probably missing is a quick guard that can like really get dribble penetration off the bench because that's not really Pritchard's game. Even if Pritchard does take a step forward this year with consistent playing time, they probably just want one other guard that can just get into the interior and score and actually like have a presence in the interior. And it'll be really interesting to see if they reach an extension agreement with uh, Pritchard because they are talking extension and... From what I've heard, the gap is relatively small. It's a couple million dollars on the number that what the Celtics are offering and what Pritchard's looking for. So I can't imagine they don't get that deal done if the Celtics are really going to put that offer out there on paper. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Mr. Dubin, we'll move beyond the Celtics. There are four other teams in this division. (laughs) Who do you think got better and worse? So I think that the Knicks got better. Basically, the only real change they made is swapping out Obi Toppin for Dante DiVincenzo. And I think mm-hmm. that DiVincenzo's defense and shooting are much more uh, needed than what Toppin brought in terms of his ability to run the floor and make plays on the break. Their their bench unit is going to get out on the break no matter what when you have Quickly and Josh Hart playing together. Like, they're going to run. And while Toppin brought something to that, I think... Dante does too. So, I mean, to me, that's a pretty clear one. Like they brought back basically the same team with an upgrade at one of their nine rotation spots. Uh, I think Philly uh, pretty clearly looks kind of worse right now, I guess, like depends what happens with James Harden. Um, you know, they, they did lose George Niang in free agency, which I think they sort of needed that, that shooter off the bench. And I'm just sort of not sure what to think there. I think Toronto got worse losing Fred Van Vliet and essentially replacing him with Dennis Schroeder. And then I think it depends on how you look at Brooklyn. Like, obviously they're worse than when we talked this time last year, but maybe they might be better than post trade deadline. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> is like, do you want to run your offense through Dinwiddie? I guess they don't really have a choice at this point. The the upside for them is that Ben Simmons comes back and is a useful product uh, in productive player in that Cam Johnson takes another step forward offensively. So, so I guess they definitely have some upside. But for me, it seems like the Knicks are the only team that actually made some sort of meaningful improvement. And I, th- I think a big thing with them, it's not just how they reconfigured their roster a little bit, but I expect Quentin Grimes to take another pretty notable step forward this year. So they're like that one team where you could see them getting some meaningful player development improvement from some of their core guys. It's pretty wild how young their rotation is. Like Julius Randle is 28 and he's like pretty clearly the oldest guy in the rotation. Yeah, it, it is wild. And with the Knicks, they will, I think they will miss Toppin, but DiVincenzo and I don't, you know, it's always hard. We still like talent in, talent out because they had Josh Hart only for a portion of the season. So if we're kind of doing aggregate versus aggregate, that, that helps the Knicks more because of that, you know, like a year ago versus at the end of the season, because Josh Hart really helped them and he gave Thibodeau some different ways to run, to run the rotation and they can, they can do some things that I really like. And I mean, their bench units were very good overall last year and the Nets kind of hurt are hurt by that exact same how you want to do it because their team changed dramatically over the course of the year. Philly, to me, there was a point in the offseason, I mean, I wrote a piece for The Athletic kind of about this, where I was apoplectic about 
the decisions that, that Jalen McDaniels, Shake Milton, and George Niang all left and all signed completely reasonable contracts with other teams. And it was the idea of like, yeah, they're prioritizing this cap space in 24. And like, I wrote about who they might be interested in getting. And I, I don't think Drew Holiday gets added to that list now, but who, who the hell knows at this point. Um, but they, let's say partially, they, they partially covered it with, uh, they had Beverly early on, but then they got Danny Green and Kelly Oubre. Now, Green and Oubre at their best are like they do they're they're good players who do things that can help this team the problem is Danny Green is you know coming off of injuries he hasn't played a lot over the last year plus and Ubre is at times like he can be a spectacular scorer and at times I, there are going to be games this season where like Philly fans are just praising his name and like oh this guy like getting him for the minimum was one of the best deals of the offseason and then there will be other points where you you know want him to play defense or function within a team concept where <laughs> that will not necessarily be the case and like I always I think back to like it's a matter of trust and with Nick Nurse taking the reins there like is he gonna trust Kelly Oubre in a playoff game like I'm not even talking about like closing five stuff I'm just talking about like giving him a 10 minute run and being like okay I'm you're not gonna like do a bunch of things that drive our team crazy yeah the good news is there's never really been an issue with uh Nick Nurse and theoretically talented players who frustrate him and him not trusting them enough to even put them on the court. That, that's never been an issue <laughs> for Nick Nurse before. So it's, it's not like that's going to come up for Philly this year. Uh, also, like there, you won't find a, a bigger Danny Green fan than me, but he is a my age and looked pretty rough last year in the playoffs coming off of that that injury that he suffered in the playoffs the year before he got a little bit of run in that series for Cleveland against the Knicks and it it wasn't pretty obviously his role is to either stand and shoot or run and shoot and the the run and shoot part needs to be working for him to bring what they need him to bring and obviously we need to see how that works you know, with him coming back from the knee. Yeah, with him, P.J. Tucker, and Tobias Harris all out there, that's a lot of uh, stationary shooting. <laughs> Makes me a little worried. Uh, but hey, at least Kelly Oubre will be happy to do everything imaginable on the court as well, right? So it'll bounce itself out. I mean, I'm still holding out hope that Kelly Oubre is in the right winning situation where he's just like, whatever. And maybe him going all the way down to a minimum will be the wake-up call that he needs to kind of like hone in and be consistent. Um because I feel like they're going to need, I mean, who knows what's happening with James, but let's say they trade James Harden. Are they going to get even remotely the same level of talent back in any of these theoretical deals? So I feel like they're almost going to rely on Ubre to be a bit of a creator. They might have to. And that is the elephant in the room. We're recording this on Friday, October 6th. James Harden is still a 76er, but how much James Harden do they get? What does that become is an open question. James Harden, when he doesn't want to be somewhere, his behavior generally lends itself to a worse overall outcome, which is his prerogative. And there are are people that will, of course, be frustrated by that. But to a certain extent, you know, there's a freedom in your behavior there. But Mr. Weiss's point, I think, is well taken. I'm sure I'm sure you agree, Jared Dubin, that (laughs) I agree with myself. Yes, of course, that um, it's hard to imagine. And I know this is the pressure that Daryl Morey is dealing with right now. It's hard to imagine a trade that gets the Sixers 
as good a player, even with all of our misgivings about Harden as a 16-game player, you know, his playoff limitations and everything else, it's hard for me to imagine them walking away from this with a with a player or combination of players that are as good as he is for this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's pretty clearly very unlikely to happen. Um, I suppose the good news is that I'm not sure if anybody's heard this before, but, you know, Daryl Morey is comfortable being uncomfortable. So, <laughs> you know, he's willing to take this, you know, as far as it goes until he gets the deal that he wants. And if that means that James has to be around and be unhappy all year and Joel has to give comments to the press about how, you know, he doesn't like the way things are happening and he has to take responsibility for whatever, then that's what it's going to take. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually does happen because, you know, for all of the ridiculousness about people saying that phrase over and over, Daryl really is pretty comfortable being uncomfortable and he doesn't really care. He's going to wait to get exactly what he wants to get. And if he doesn't get it, then he's just not going to do the deal. Um, but I mean, even if he holds out, like what is the offer that's going to come between now and like the deadline for James Harden, that is going to bring back a player of, of his caliber, whether in the regular season or in the playoffs. Like, I, I just don't know who comes out that like, especially because Harden's in the final year of his deal. So when he, Anybody that's trading for him, like you got to really know that he's going to be sticking around. And I mean, he's made it pretty clear there's only one place he wants to go. So, like, I, I don't know if you're the Heat. Like, are you trading for James Harden? No. Like, uh, and that was just to name a team that's been in the news. But like, I, I don't see how any other team out there is just going to be like, "Yep, we'll do it," and give you a player that brings the same, either the same floor or the same ceiling that Harden brings. I mean, right now this deal with the Clippers is being held up because the Clippers don't want to include Terrence Mann, and Terrence Mann is like a salt is a good rotation player, but like that's the that's the caliber of player that's holding up a deal like this. So, I, I mean. Well, I, and, and think I, about I've been it. Struggling that, to think of that. well, and that the idea that Maury might be prioritizing players who don't have as much owed to them beyond this year. So you're not you're you're not trying to like thread a needle. You're trying to thread a like you're trying to thread like five needles at the same time, which is extremely difficult. I think we need to talk about that too. Like the idea that they're prioritizing you know cap space in 2024 and flexibility next summer. Like I think a big part of what the Bucks did was recognizing that they didn't have till next summer to make their move. And I think that the Sixers might be in that same situation and aren't acting with the same sense of urgency. Like if this blows up this year or doesn't go as well as they want it to this year, it's entirely possible that, you know, your flexibility next summer is like Joel Embiid wants out and not we can do whatever we want around Joel Embiid. And it seems like they should be acting with, you know, a little bit more urgency in terms of we need to get the guys in here that we're going to try to win with going forward before next summer rather than thinking we can do it next summer. Well, and to add one more point to that, it's it's a really two-pronged pressure going for the 2024 idea because you not only have to get the right players, but something that I'm sure Celtics fans and many others understand well is it also has to work out. Like there isn't like, for example, the Gordon Hayward situation, the Celtics did everything right there. And then he, you know, falls in the first game of the season and like, and 
and and gets horrifically injured and everything kind of alters from that point for the Sixers it's okay you need to let's say it's Pascal Siakam or it's Drew Holiday the return or you know whatever that player is it's not only you get that player but if if the 24-25 season doesn't work out then Joel Embiid's not going to care that they got the right guy and be like oh I completely understand he'll be two years out from winning that regular season MVP closer to free agency and be like okay I I probably don't want to be here do do we assume he's going to still be there for 24-25 if they don't make a meaningful stride now well Daryl Morey I don't know if you've heard this he's very comfortable being uncomfortable so so. someone said that recently I can't remember who Um, I want to, I actually want to, so we've we've gone through this pretty well, and I have a catch-all in this of our outline of, like, moves that stick out to you that we haven't discussed, and I actually want to start that with, let's call it a non-move or a series of non-moves, and that's where the Toronto Raptors are. And, like, if you want to kind of put all this together, where at the deadline, Masai Ujiri trades a lightly protected first-round pick for Jakob Pertl, and then gives Jakob Pertl a pretty much a market rate contract. I would say maybe a little richer, but I, I like Pertl. He had a rough year. I think he's better than that. Then Fred Van Vliet leaves. And as we're recording this podcast, Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi are still there. And I, I've had this problem and I know Raptors fans have gotten very pissed at me over the years and that's fine about like this idea that the Raptors are full of all these players who'd be more interesting somewhere else than where they currently are. And somehow that has gotten even more extreme over the last five months. I, I, yeah, I, I would have it- been shocked if you told me last year like at the deadline that they would be coming into the season with Siakam, OG and Barnes all on the same team still. I think Siakam is shocked too based on the quotes that we've been hearing so far in the first week. The, the, the it seems like this team was supposed to be pulled apart more and the Van Fleet thing was the first stage of that and they I mean maybe it's going to happen more at the deadline or something like that but I I don't know what they're holding on to at this point considering where they are and considering where Siakam and, and Anobi are in their careers. Like you can commit to Pirtle and still try to rebuild your your wing core over a you know two year period of time and still get the best out of him. But like this team, we're just just replacing Van Fleet with Schroeder. Their half court offense is going to be the worst in the NBA, I assume. And you can be a running offense as much as you want, but one, it's like you've got a you've got a plotting pick and roll center, so that already makes it a little bit challenging. And two, can do are they going to have limitless stamina that they can do something like that and make it hold up over the course of a regular of a regular season and actually win a playoff series that way maybe one but not more than one so they i assume there has to be some sort of big step back for them to eventually take a step forward in a couple years coming really soon because this current roster just doesn't seem to make sense anymore the the raptors also run into this issue they have they have these this twin pair of half court problems which is one they don't really have players that are great at creating advantages like they're i know that's the dream for scotty barnes and siakam can do it at times all that the second part is they have a lot of players who, when they're not involved in the primary action, are actually problematic in their own way. So like, if Scotty Barnes isn't in the action, the other team is going to give him a lot of space. If Jakob Pertl is not in the action, teams are going to give him a lot of space. If Dennis Schroeder is in the action, largely a similar story. And then for OG and, you know, like Gary Trent and some of the other guys, like they can and they can't, but also like OG might chafe at that. You know, he's had, he's had a little bit more latitude to explore the studio space. So I could see it as a weird circumstance where like everybody's mad that they're not getting the ball enough and everyone's mad that it's not working and that's 
that's a lot for a new head coach to deal with. I think also that like the the half court offense was already bad over the last couple of oh, years. Oh yeah, they were like they were like twenty fifth last year, something like that. Yeah, and it's because of all those issues that you mentioned. Like they don't have enough individual creation either for guys that create for themselves or especially creating for others. And now that's even worse now. And they don't have enough guys that can space the floor around the guys who are capable creators, but not high level creators necessarily. And that again is even worse now. So, I mean, it just sort of all compounds on each other. And then as far as like the roster construction and seeming like this was not supposed to be what they were coming in with. Some of it is, is just on Masai at this point. Like, you got to be willing to do a deal. You can't just flirt with everything and keep coming this like this is what everybody made fun of Danny Ainge for years for like oh well we almost did this and we almost did that and we almost did that and like eventually you just keep losing guys like think about the players that were on that title team and all the different guys that they lost for nothing. They didn't get anything for Kawhi or Danny Green or Marcus Gasol that summer. They didn't get anything for Serge Ibaka. They didn't get anything for now Fred Van Vliet. And they got Precious Achua, essentially, for Kyle Lowry. And, like, is it any wonder that they are where they are now based on that? It's because they've been so unwilling to pull the trigger on, on anything that, like, Masai has won so many deals that it feels like he's not willing to make one unless he's so clearly, you know, the winner of the trade that it sort of hamstrings them from doing things that might give them a clearer direction instead of like having to j- just win it. You know, like it's 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 hard to really phrase what I'm trying to say, but well, it I, does, I, I, I want to do it. having Danny Ainge now. Yeah, yeah, they're they're letting perfect be the enemy of. Not necessarily good, but like a choice. And, and like I want to have to come up with a perfect deal instead of deciding what they're going to do. Related to that, the other one for me, and I, I, I brought back the trade deadline and talked about Pirtle, is it appears that the Raptors had a had a number in mind for Fred VanVleet that they were like they were comfortable paying him. And then if it went beyond that, then they were just, you know, they were going to say like kind of good luck or whatever. And they just thought that nobody was getting there. And that number was low enough that like there was space. It wasn't, it doesn't appear to be a circumstance like Jeremy Grant, where Grant just chose the Pistons over the Nuggets, even though the money was similar. And that is a wild position to have planned out. Cause I don't think that, you know, it's not like they got new information from early February to late June that changed how they evaluated Fred VanVleet. He's been on the team forever. The team is basically what we thought they were, all that. So to understand that that's where the situation was, and then to to trade off no one, and to add one player with a lightly protected pick, it just seems like you're like, oh yeah, I'm just like, I'm loading this like explosive here. I'm loading it, but I'm not putting a fuse in, and I'm going to leave an open hole, and there's no chance that any, any match or any, you know, like, loose flame could get in there. It's just like, it seems now like they set themselves up in this completely untenable situation. It happened, and they're like oh, well, I don't know what to do now. They also, they knew that Orlando and Houston were lurking for Van Vliet. Like, they knew there were two teams that would be happy to bid the crap out of them. We're going to go for them. So I I don't know what their walkaway number was, but, like, if it wasn't the, basically the max they could pay them, then why did they keep them? It's, it's I mean, I think uh, other Jared had it 
perfectly that this is a team that hasn't been willing to take the plunge because they think that they got I, I don't know I mean I can't imagine it's an ego thing with Masai where it's like Masai doesn't lose because now that he's built a champion thing like they he's been someone who's been willing to make really difficult decisions but this is just a team that there's there's some sort of like combination of players that are getting better but they're not making big strides once they get their mid-20s and then also keeping them together for a long time that creates a staleness within a franchise and like we're seeing with Boston like Boston is trying to make some significant changes around that to keep things fresh and they're also pushing in a lot of future draft capital to get there and they're also fortunate in that like they at least have like one MVP caliber guy there and then with Jalen Brown he's playing at a level you know comparable to where Siakam is and maybe at the end of the day this comes down to Toronto needs someone to develop into a superstar caliber player so if Barnes takes a huge leap then I think that changes the calculus and they're probably giving it one more year to see him do that let's jump to something even more depressing than the Raptors situation that is the state of rookies in the Atlantic division wait I I wanted to say something oh, about sure, go uh, ahead. another move that stood out I know I mentioned it briefly earlier but I do think it's interesting with the Knicks swapping out top in for DiVincenzo that they've essentially locked themselves into playing a bunch of small ball and some yeah. rotation issues on the wing and at point guard. Like if you figure that Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle are each going to get there, you know, 34, 36 minutes or whatever it is, there's not enough time to go around to play all of uh, Quentin Grimes, RJ Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, Josh Hart, Dante DiVincenzo, you know, especially if they're going to split up the center minutes between Mitchell Robinson and Isaiah Hartenstein, which they are, and Tibbs is not going to play Randall at center almost surely. So they are smaller than usual. Tibbs traditionally has liked to have two big guys on the court, and they will almost certainly be playing either Hart or Barrett at the four a bunch this year, unless they're going back to like a 10-man rotation and Jericho Sims is playing the four, which I don't think is necessarily in the cards. So they're going to be smaller and they're going to have issues sorting out the minutes between like five guys who all deserve to play for, for varying reasons and to varying degrees. And I think it's interesting that they sort of lock themselves into that construction, which is not necessarily what you would think of given who is coaching the team. Well, if, if RJ Barrett like really puts things together this year, could you see them trying to trade Julius Randle for kind of like at a loss just to reconfigure the roster to fit better? I do. I think if they were going to trade Randall at a loss, it would have happened last offseason when, you know, there was obviously a lot of discussion around it. I just don't think that they are willing to trade him just for the sake of trading him. I think if a deal came around that legitimately got them a, you know, real superstar type of player and Randall had to be involved in the deal to make it work for whatever reason that they would consider it, not necessarily definitely do it, but I don't think you're going to see a situation where it's like a salary dump or a slight loss or like, we're just going to get, you know, a back end rotation guy and a draft pick for this. Like, I don't think that's really in the cards given how two of the last three seasons have gone. Um, I think you're more likely to see, I don't think it's necessarily likely, but I do think you're more likely to see Barrett get traded than Randall get traded. If, if one of them is traded this year in particular, but I don't think either of them are, are likely to happen to be clear. It's, I mean, where the Knicks go from here is so fascinating. And I mean, there's possibility that they were going to get in on the like point guard derby. It doesn't appear that that was the case, but I mean, not because they needed a point guard. Jalen Brunson was phenomenal last year, but because that's just who was available. You know, Drew Holidays don't don't hit the market that often. And I'm not criticizing the Knicks for not getting him because I think the the 
Blazers got a good return. It seems weird to say the Blazers got a good return for Drew Holiday, but that's the way yeah. these things. They that, were that, in on that, that, by the way. They they just weren't going to meet the price that the Celtics yeah. gave up for him. And, and also, like, how unlucky are the Blazers that Dame waited until the year after the Knicks finally found a point guard for the first time since like the early 1990s to request a trade? Think about all <laughs> they could have gotten from the Knicks for Dame two years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've brought this up with the uh, a non-Atlantic guy, but the Wizards with Beal, like that they you know gave him the no trade and all the stuff he had the, some of those moves and and it's more justifiable for me with the Blazers because a they had been better and b like the last couple of years were so weird with them but yeah that's a, a really fair point the other move that actually now that we're talking about that I want to bring up is the Brooklyn Nets had this strange offseason where they made moves that I'm completely cool with but they also to me did get worse you know like Seth Curry Joe Harris Yuta Watanabe, Sumner to an extent, like they're all different places now. And they got, they actually did well on the minimum market. Dennis Smith and Lonnie Walker are two of the better minimum signings to me that were around. The Suns and a few other teams did better, but they're, they're up there. But that, when you couple that with the, and we'll talk about this in the season preview part, couple that with the downgrades in talent other than Mikhail Bridges having a star turn that they had at the deadline throughout last year. Like it, I, I think the Nets made the right decision decision, but I also think they materially got worse. There's a, one thing that was interesting with them is there was, I was hearing so much smoke about them moving like Royce O'Neal to Cleveland at the beginning of the summer with DFS end up somewhere else. And they kind of just like held down the fort on their relatively older front court where they don't I'm like, do they have someone that they're really building for the long term there besides Bridges? And maybe they think Cam Thomas is going to turn into something. I mean, but besides Cam Johnson, uh, presumably like but, and, Cam and Claxton, I would say, yeah, I mean, like like on the perimeter, but like, oh, oh Johnson, OK, got it, got it. Yeah, but Johnson's like a little a little old to to look at him as like a transformative project at this point. Like I think he's probably a relatively close to where his ceiling is going to be. Although obviously, like we're seeing with Bridges, give them a new role, more opportunity, and they're going to be able to grow into it. And I, I definitely like that for Johnson. But with Brooklyn, I just I don't see an end game for them in sight at this point. An, an end game or a mid game? Like what what do they yeah. want? What do they want to be three years from now? I think the answer to that comes based on where Phoenix's picks end up. Sure. It's such a strange, and I mean, and as Jared Weiss brought up, the this the, I, I've used this for the Raptors for years. They have a lot of players that could help other teams, but I don't know if they want to sell them at the cost that it is right now. Maybe they kind of need to see where the season goes. But yeah, like I'm I'm a big Dorian Finney-Smith guy. I think he can really help somebody. I think that they can do. You know, I'm less of a Royce O'Neal guy, but he could fill in a rotation spot for somebody else. And you know who could use both of them? The Celtics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the the other crazy thing with that is the Celtics could really use Reggie Bullock, who could have been in the Grant Williams trade, but wasn't to them. I, th- I mean, th- I think there's a reason why Bullock is is getting a minimum right now. I think teams are looking at him as just his health is kind of sapping a lot of his athleticism and his shooting isn't going to hold up. So it, it seems like he's just someone that's being valued less. Plus, the market. plus I, maybe talk, now he starts the season with the Rockets, shoots that 45% true shooting for the first two months of the year, <laughs> gets bought out, and then the Celtics get him for the part where he shoots well. I was going to say, like, they, they can't have the annual, like, October swoon coming in there for them. They, they need their guys to hit shots off the bench. Uh, let's get back to the rookies. Uh, does Grady Dick win the rookie we're most excited to see in this division by acclamation, or is uh, one of the Nets guys, can they fight fight for this honor? <sighs> 
I mean, I think it's Grady Dick, right? Like, I he's at least a lottery pick. Like, I, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head who the Nets drafted this year, but it wasn't anybody that had, like, the, the draft pedigree of, of Grady Dick, right? Yeah, uh, Noah Clowney and Dariq Whitehead. Clowney Whitehead was Whitehead. a highly regarded high school prospect, but then had injuries, which he still has, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, Whitehead, at least, you know, because he's a... a, a I guess like a an exciting wing relative to like Clowney being kind of like stuck behind Claxton and bringing a lot of similarities there. At least Whitehead might have more of an opportunity to to break out a little bit uh, if he gets healthy. Also, he's like a, you know he's a newer guy, right? So he's there's a bit, there's a little bit of like the hometown kid thing with the Nets fans that might really prop him up. But Grady Dick is like clearly I think out ahead of everybody else. Um, and then like there's let's see in Boston there's Jordan Walsh who probably won't get much run early on he might eventually be able to get some defensive role with the celtics but like i feel like dick and whitehead are probably in their own little tier the film on grady dick was pretty good i'm just wondering how the raptors want to use him the answer probably is if he's good enough to do what they want from him and like his off-ball activity and he's like an opportunistic guy like had some pretty good rebounding film and all that then i, I could see a circumstance where darko trusts him more than Gary Trent, not saying he's a best superior player, but like the idea of the severity of strengths and weaknesses and like coachable and all that type of stuff. But he's going to be like low end rotation probably at the start. And then he can earn his way into more just like incidentally, like Jordan Walsh in in Boston. I was going to say the upside for him in Toronto is probably that he gives them like a more diverse shooter than what Gary Trent brings Mm -hmm. and who mostly just brings that shooting. Like there was a point earlier in his career where he did bring like vaguely something on defense, but that hasn't necessarily been the case in more recent seasons. And, you know, Dick has the size at least to defend. I think he's like six, four, something like that. So, you know, in, in theory he could bring, or no, he's taller than that. Isn't he like six, six, maybe, I don't know. Um, but you know, he, he has the size to be able to, you know, potentially hang with, with some wings. Um, so in, in theory, it's like a little bit more diverse shooting and a little bit more on the defensive end. And that's sort of the, the upside case. I don't know that there's anybody that has an upside case like he does for this season in the division. Yeah, Dick's six eight, and I, I think guys that well, he's that tall. Yeah, I mean that's what he's listed at. Um, I mean I assume his list yeah, is accurate. Yeah, he he, he draft, plays right? a little smaller than that, but yeah, he's he's yeah. you know forward forward sized. Yeah, but like anyone that's like a kind of like movement shooter that then is willing to go downhill and try to like bang with people in the air. If we can see some of that for him, I think that's going to make him super exciting. And just I guess anything to inject some freshness into what Toronto's doing is going to be exciting. So I'm sure the Raptors fans are going to really hold on to that. Anything else from the off season? Um, oh, I guess I guess we can do just. Just quick, uh, best newcomer to their team. I think the competitors are in the same division, so this and it's all on the same team. So this could be fun. Yeah, I was. It's either Porzingis or Holiday, like pretty clearly, right? I mean, it's Holiday. I think the curveball answer could be Nick Nurse. But uh, yeah, I mean, Holiday is probably the best player. I mean, what's interesting is that Porzingis is the player that changes things for Boston, at least at, compared to last year, more than Holiday because Smart was a similar player. But then after after seeing where they were where they were before, what was that a week ago when they made the or less than a week ago when they made the trade? Um, yeah, clearly like Holiday is 
far and beyond the best newcomer. But Nick Nurse is probably the one that changes things the most. Potentially. And I mean, we'll see what the Sixers rotation looks like. I I was more excited to see Nurse with this team before kind of the Harden situation became what it became because it was like n- mm-hmm. what Nurse was notorious for was like if he didn't trust enough guys in his rotation, he's going to play them really hard. Like, I don't know if that's going to be viable with Harden if he's still on the team. But yeah, I what what Nick Nurse, what's going to be so fun, I'm super excited about with him is he's in such a different situation now than he was in Toronto mm-hmm. that we're going to find out what what are his real hallmarks as a coach and what was situational based on the personnel and situation that he had with the Raps. Yeah, I mean, the big things with Toronto during his tenure there, they never really had good shooting. The Sixers last year were first in the league in three-point percentage. They never really had, like, a big man that they could base a lot of their offense around. Now they have Joel Embiid. They never really had, like, a high-level on-ball creator for others. And if Harden sticks around, they have that. It's like the exact inverse offensively of what of what he had in Toronto. And it's just going to be really interesting, assuming Harden is still there, to, to see how he builds things because it's so much different than what he had before. It's also a team that plays inside out for or it's you know high middle pick and roll. So like it's a team that like the spacing is so different for him. And I mean obviously I think the thing that all of us are hoping for just waiting to see is is he going to be able to get Joel Embiid moving across the floor more. Especially you know we'll see what happens in the regular season, but it's really the playoffs where Embiid is just playing more stationary. And that's the you know that's a big thing is like can they create more variance in Embiid's game so that it's not so much about short roll pick and pop shots or um or like drawing double and triple teams out of the post and trying to swing swing around it like this team especially with the talent that they have especially with Tyrese Maxey playing off ball so much while James Harden is still there like this team needs to have something more than draw doubles swing and then try to attack open space we can move into the season preview part of this pod and I will start with Mr. Weiss on this you can use whatever criteria you want just explain it to listeners what you're going to use rank the Atlantic division one to five I mean Boston number one uh I'm genuinely struggling on Philly versus New York just because of what could happen with Philly if they trade hard and then don't get substantial talent back. But I'll, I'll stick with Philly, number two. New York, number three. And then ooh, I mean, Brooklyn and Toronto are neck and neck for me. I, I really feel like they're both on their own tier, but on I... I I feel like the downside with Toronto is probably a little bit stronger, but the ceiling is obviously much higher. So yeah, I'll go with Toronto four and Brooklyn five. Yeah, I have the same thing. I have Boston. Then I have like Philly slash New York because I couldn't decide because we don't know if James Harden's going to be on the team. Um, and then I had uh, Toronto a little bit ahead of Brooklyn for me because the Nets even less than the Raptors, I think don't have much in the way of like offensive creation. They basically just have Mikhail Bridges and Dinwiddie in terms of guys that can create. And I think we saw in the playoffs last year that when you, the team that has a bunch of players that everybody thinks are, are pretty good and like maybe underrated and they're all lengthy and switchable and around the same size, it's, it's better in theory than it is in practice because you need the guys that are going to tilt the defense more than the guys that the Nets had. And you need the guys that are going to be stouter 
at the point of attack on both ends of the court than the guys at the Nets are going to have. And it's just, it's a team that I think is going to be fun to watch, especially on nights when they're playing teams that are not at a massive talent advantage over them. Like if, if you fire up like Brooklyn, Indiana one night, I think that would be a really fun watch. But if they come up against teams that just have a lot more talent, like they're going to get their offense smothered some nights just because there's not enough creation there to me. One of the other weird parts of that, I agree with you guys that it's a dogfight for four and five between Brooklyn and Toronto is that neither of them probably has their own draft pick. So it gets complicated in terms of the incentives involved. But Toronto's pick is top six protected. Now it would have the season would have to go pretty south pretty fast, you know, like kind of like the Tampa year for them to really have a chance of like maximizing that pick, especially with lottery reform the way it is. Brooklyn doesn't have theirs at all. It's going to Houston no matter what. So they don't have those incentives. And like I could see each of them losing some really weird games. I, I agree with Dubin's point about like those kind of those middle level opponents producing some fun games and like i i think the raptors are a better team right now i think that the raptors are also more likely to become a worse team over time just because the writing has been like brooklyn has almost all their principles under contract so like they could do it they don't have the incentives uh i'm actually knowing what we know right now i'm actually going to pick the knicks to have a better record than the sixers on the idea that they have a high much higher floor and a lower ceiling and if Embiid misses more time than he did last year, if J- if they either have James Harden and he's not that guy or they don't have him, their depth is a major concern for me. Whereas like the Knicks, I believe in their offense. I believe in their kind of like overall level of play. And I, I think that their talent, their, you know, I like think they-, they can, if a guy misses time other than Brunson, I think they can handle it pretty well. Whereas the Sixers aren't really suited for that. Maybe I'm underappreciating Nick Nurse and maybe he's going to be like, oh, you idiot. Like they added one of the best coaches in the league, but we haven't seen that quite over the last few years so i will go celtics knicks sixers (laughs) raptors really is hard nets raptors nets raptors raptors nets one thing about the knicks is if any team is likely to experience a health regression like in the entire league it might be them that's a great like point. all of like hartenstein played 82 games quickly 81 randall 77 barrett 73 quentin grimes 71 jaylen brunson 68 like the only regular rotation guy who missed significant time was mitchell robinson he missed like 20 games in the middle of the season um obviously robinson has a pretty extensive injury history in his past the other guys have been for the most part healthy throughout their careers but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stay as healthy as they did last year and there is i think a little bit more you know downside than you might think just on the the health luck front dovetailing with what we just talked about we'll start with mr dubin how many teams from the Atlantic Division make the playoffs, meaning the eight, not meaning the play-in? Um, I've got three. I, I think you can count on Boston, New York, and Philly to be in there. Um, Toronto and Brooklyn, I think they've got shots at the play-in, but I think you're just you're better off betting like that a division is not going to get you know half of the the playoff field or more. Yeah, that's it. Um, like like I could totally see Toronto getting eight, but it's just like there's no one here that's clearly sticking out as they're going to jump it to the top seven. And I feel like there's at least seven teams that should clearly get in there. And then Indiana have just above those teams. So I feel like that that makes it eight right there. So, yeah, I, w- I would stick with three. Three, then I would say four is more likely than two. Does that seem fair? Yeah. Then yeah. What, yes, definitely. What about five versus two? Mm. 
No. I think it's two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, Atlanta, I think that it's more likely something goes wrong either injury-wise for New York or Philly or, like, blow-up-wise in terms of everything personality-wise going on in Philly than it is that all five teams get to the playoffs. Well, what if we find out that Jason Tatum's actually 45? Like, he's... I don't know if that's <laughs> but Benjamin Buttoning or something going on, and then, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> he's, I mean, Boston, he's 19 Boston, still, right? I think he's, he's right between 45 and 19, which I think makes him 25. But I think Boston, if Tatum were to, like, you know, be out for the season, I think there's still a 45-ish win team, I'd I th- imagine. I think, they, I think they're still top six. Yeah, yeah, they're still top six. But yeah. they're probably fighting with New York for that, you know, that kind of maybe hoping to get into the 4-5 matchup. Last question. Um, I, I you, Whoever wants to start can start as soon as I finish talking. The, the Atlantic division is hard for breakout players. The framing I always do here is players that we will talk, be talking about differently a year ago than, or a year from now than we are right now. Like Jalen Brunson, you don't usually get one as clear cut as that where he just had this awesome, awesome year. But there are so many established commodities in the Atlantic that it is a little bit different, but there are still some worthwhile candidates. Should I go for the third straight year with uh, Tyrese Maxey, Emmanuel Quickly, and OG Ananobi? Should yes! I run it back? No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it again. I do think that, like, of that Knicks wing group earlier, there's going to be at least one or two of them that we're talking about differently, whether it's for a good reason or a bad reason, just because whichever of those guys manages to separate and take on the like heavy minutes and closing five roles, we're going to think more of them. And if one of them, you know, disappoints relative to expectations and is, you know, not playing as many minutes or not playing down the stretch, then I think just because there are, you know, five of those guys who deserve minutes it's going to be difficult to find them for all of them so somebody's gonna probably separate in one direction or the other at some point so just from a a numbers standpoint there's going to be guys that we think differently of there and then uh, i think one way or the other porzingis we're going to think of him differently whether he has like the same type of season that he did last year but now on a much better team and especially on the celtics a lot of people are gonna you know remember how talented they thought he was when he was in New York and Dallas, but if he sort of disappoints, then there's going to be a lot of, man, like, why did they do that for, for him? So there's kind of a, a wide uh, a wide differential between what we could think. And then I, uh, I just feel like Delano Benton, it seems like the kind of guy the Celtics <laughs> pick up and turn him into a guy who plays like 15 minutes and looks pretty good. Yeah, he's he's either going to be like a dark horse eighth man of the year or he's going to be completely out of the rotation for like Lamar Stevens. It's going to be interesting <laughs> to see how that plays out. Yeah. But I mean, Grimes has been my pick in these questions all summer. He's just like, it's the one guy on the Knicks that hasn't really entered the national lexicon as much as like I feel like quickly did last year. And Josh Hart is kind of like a known player at this point, although Hart feel I feel like he took on a much more transformed role with this team and so he's probably also elevating his stature a lot as well and then Porzingis is going to be my other thing it's just that if Porzingis has a year like he did last year where he was like a fringe all-star in obscurity he does that with Boston and considering how much less responsibility he has like he it just it should make things really easy for him and he like it just especially with the defensive role that they're going to need him to have like they're going to need him to try to block five shots a game basically and so 
I could see him making an all-star team just because his numbers and his efficiency is just so good. So uh, you could see Przingis kind of going back into the all-star spotlight again. I really hope it's Scotty Barnes. I, I, I'm rooting for him. I, li- I, I like him. Um, I don't think it's going to be him. I think that this, the, the Raptors have too, ma- too many personnel issues for it to be a thing. I also love Precious Achua, but I don't know if he's going to get the opportunity in his, like, there are fewer, like, league pass guys that, that like, there are few stronger league pass guys than Achua because his off- he's wonderful defensively, and his offensive game is kind of, in a way, it's like a half-court Anthony Randolph, where I used to always say it's like rolling a dice at random and whatever happened, you just did it like or like pushing buttons randomly on a controller like precious Chua takes some of the most wild shots i've ever seen a guy his size take which is pretty fun i want to so porzingis is an excellent choice i'm really happy that you guys brought him up i i actually had to i hadn't thought of him i have a weird hedge that i want to throw out there and that is og and anobi for a team not in the atlantic division if he gets traded i think that there will be a situation where the larger group of people gets a clearer understanding of what he does well I mean, I guess a big question there is the place that he goes to, are they going to try to put him in a creator role or could he go somewhere like, I don't know if this even makes sense off the top of my head, but like a Sacramento where like they have a guard who's going to inject a ton of energy into the offense and he's playing off the ball more. Because I I worry that if you put Ananobi in a new situation where he's trying to initiate more, he's just going to run into a lot more brick walls and he's not going to be able to take the leap that everyone hopes he can. That's a fair point. Um, I I have also thought about Ananobi potentially on the Sixers, though I don't think that would happen via trade i think that would happen via free agency if he ends up being the guy though i mean it's so weird that a number of the different raptors guys could end up leaving them and re- going to the sixers so another team in this division in free agency but we don't need to get into that right now i'm trying to think if there's anybody else that is worthy of discussion in this breakout space i love DeAnthony melton but melton it's sort of similar in a way to me to we had an extended conversation about Jaden mcdaniels in the northwest one where i think he's a good version of what he is but i don't expect him to be a fundamentally different player so that's why somebody maybe like quentin grimes is a better fit for this theory yeah i mean if brunson does the same thing he did last year i think it could be a little bit different again still like i think there's more of like a it's like a fascination right now and if he has the same type of season it's like oh well maybe this dude is even better than we thought this time last year you know one other i want to mention mikhail bridges on phoenix last year 57% true shooting on 19 usage, which is broadly in line. His role had increased uh, depending on the year, Um, but but that was where he was. On Brooklyn in 27 games, 61% true shooting on 30 usage. If Ah, if only someone had written a story about that last year. Yes, (laughs) if only. So if if Mikhail Bridges is a clear-cut all-star this year, like, that is a breakout. Like, that is something different. And even if he's doing it on a team that we're all not sure is going to make the playoffs, like, that's still a pretty impressive step for him yeah i would have had mikhail on my list but i sort of already thought that the breakout happened i guess people probably didn't see it as much over the second half of the season because he was on the nets but it did seem like it was pretty well covered in terms of what he was doing after he got there and then obviously they had that that first round series against philly where he had a you know a couple a couple more really big scoring games but I'm excited to see if he can develop a little bit more as a playmaker for others this year. Typically, that comes around last. Sometimes it doesn't come around to the level you want it to at all. Like some guys just don't become plus creators for others. I think we've seen that 
uh, you know, the, the two divergent paths that can take when you see the guys in Boston. I think that Tatum has sort of blossomed playmaking-wise, and Jalen Brown has sort of stagnated there, and that's why Tatum is more highly thought of. But, you know, whether or not that comes along can be the difference between, you know, an all-star and something better than that. Yeah, I, I felt like Bridges and quickly as well, they already kind of created that national narrative and got that recognition, especially like with quickly with the six-man voting. So I, I feel like they, they grew out of this range. But you're right, it's can Bridges be a go-to pick-and-roll runner even when things slow down in the fourth quarter? And then also just is, is Cam Johnson going to add any he doesn't have to be a pick and roll guy but like is he going to be able to be a you know attack off of the spot ups and be able to make some you know plays as well because i mean his efficiency wasn't great when he got to brooklyn but like clearly he was able to expand his scoring abilities but is he going to be more than just the guy that's like a great complimentary spot up player do any of us have the intestinal fortitude slash insanity to pick ben simmons for this <laughs> i mean He's in theory we'll think that about him break. if you're just going in terms of the think about him differently by the end of the year i think that that's almost guaranteed if he comes back people are going to think about him differently and if he doesn't come back then people are really going to think about him differently in terms of there's not going to be any more oh well if ben simmons can come back type of thing yeah he's going to be he's going to be just like a dead he's dead money after this year if this if it doesn't work out this year i I assume that's everyone looks at it assuming he doesn't even assuming he comes back and plays in the nba after that anyway i mean the other weird part about it is with the breakout of mikhail bridges i don't think i would rather have ben simmons with the ball in his hands than bridges at this point and there are plenty of minutes within an nba season plenty of touches so like even if you have even if you think that simmons with the ball in his hands is less dynamic than bridges and maybe dinwiddie to an effect you still can give simmons his opportunities uh, along the lines of like i don't expect him to be fundamentally different but just with a larger audience potentially nick claxton ha- nick claxton was like in the defensive player of the year conversation it's really unfortunate that because of the way some of these things are defined like he didn't get on an all defensive team because there were a couple of centers better than him but he was awesome last year it's a contract year for Nick Claxton and there will be opportunities for him both offensively and defensively so I don't know that he'll be dramatically better because he was awesome last year but if you it's sort of like uh Matt Moore brought this up with Jalen Williams the perimeter player on OKC where sometimes repeating what you did is in a weird way a breakout because it is a validation and confirmation of your accomplishments and that's what we were saying about Brunson and I think Claxton himself said like he thought he was in the DPOI running but then after the trade last year everyone stopped paying attention and he was upset about that but I think an important factor here is it's not just a repetition it's that last year Brooklyn made the trade and, and I think the whole NBA world was like all right we don't have to pay attention to Brooklyn anymore and Bridges got so much attention because he was putting up such massive numbers and it was so shocking but at least this year we're coming into the season knowing who Brooklyn is and I think that will allow Claxton to probably get a better um like he'll get the attention he deserves more because there isn't that kind of momentum swinging away from Brooklyn as far as their you know how people are paying attention to them I think it's unfortunate that he lost um Kyrie and KD because he was having a really good offensive season too and when they lost those two you know high level creators it sort of took away from what he was doing as a role man as, as a short role guy and things like that like it's just it's just not the same with Dinwiddie running his pick and rolls especially when Dinwiddie tries to throw a lob like he might be the worst lob thrower in the league <laughs> um, but I covered Terry Rozier for a few years so oh no 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 I actually oh, looked up he's the worse I looked up the numbers one time it's it's ugly oh and also I, this could be maxi <laughs> 
Like, that's the buddy we picked. Like, one of the three of us has picked him, I think, each of his years in the league. This could be the maxi year. I picked him back-to-back seasons. (laughs) In fairness, I picked the same three guys each of the last two years. Uh, anything else? Are we we pretty much covered it? Yeah, I think we're good. We're gonna have to check in midseason just to see if the Sixers uh, trade Harden. I feel like they're gonna be so different. So it'll be interesting to see what this looks like. Two, I guess, three months from now. Imagine they trade him before this goes up, and we have to record the whole thing again. <laughs> I've been ref- like I've been refreshing Real GM's front page pretty aggressively during this recording. So hopefully, hopefully we're okay. But thank you guys both so much for coming on. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you, fellas. Thanks again to Jared Weiss and Jared Dubin for taking the time. You can read Jared Weiss at The Athletic. He does amazing work on the Celtics. You can also listen to him um, on the Daily Ding podcast, on a lot of the Athletic NBA work. He's fantastic there. And then Jared Dubin is currently freelancing, but his writing is excellent. You can also check out his Substack, lastnightinbasketball.substack.com. Is the URL there. Love having both of them on. Love getting their perspective on the Atlantic, a division that is not only tumultuous, but feels like it's going to continue to be that way. And I, and I love getting that clarity. Part of why I love these division pods is that kind of getting that sense from other people whose opinions I respect of like, like where, where these teams and situations are. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and Download every episode in whatever podcast player you choose. Real Jam Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week because my availability and guest availability, so subscription is the way to do it and helps us also with metrics and all that type of fun stuff. You can also help other people find the show. That is through word of mouth, social media, but also leaving a rating and review in whatever podcast player you use. Real GM Radio has been around a long time. I was at Warriors Media Day this past week and realized this will be my 15th year covering the NBA with a credential, which is wild. Not all of those were Real GM Radio, but pretty close. I'll have to look up some of the anniversaries if I have free time at some point. But the single most important thing you can do to support Real GM Radio is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is FanDuel FanDuel.com slash Boston new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed if you place a $5 bet I went through all that in full earlier in the pod but you should definitely check it out great to have them on board you can also check out my other work Dunked On Dunked On Prime starting to go full steam though it's not always with me just yet because Nate is finishing up the team by team stuff which is so excellent I highly recommend you listen to those great guests and everything else written work at The Athletic I have a couple pieces in the work doing something on the second apron and the new CBA right now. I don't know when that's going to be ready because I haven't finished it yet. So working on that and I have a couple other big ideas that I want to start working through. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. And I've actually been doing some replying recently. I don't promise that, but I'm trying to get better. And um, that's why I think of it more as, as feedback than starting a dialogue. But I'm always open about what it is and what it is not. And I hope you can appreciate that. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.